Welcome to This is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. In today's program, we will revisit issues currently in front of the Missouri State Legislature that are important to the health and safety of citizens. Each of these issues will positively or negatively directly impact the most vulnerable people of Missouri and our ability to advocate on their behalf. Today, we will hear highlights from our past discussions about raising the age, expungement expansion, police reform, Medicaid expansion, and the ability to freely protest injustice. Raise the age ensures that 17-year-olds in juvenile courts are not automatically tried as adults. The law for this change was passed in a previous year, but the law went unfunded. House Bill 1242 seeks to provide this funding. This bill has cleared the committee and will soon be going to the full Missouri House of Representatives. Last fall, we talked with Christian Blackman of the Campaign for Youth Justice and Latricia Gandy and Carmon Leach of MCU about Raise the Age. Um, and let's first review what is Raise the Age and when did it become law in Missouri? Um, it is a law that passed a bipartisan bill that will um, have it so that 17 year olds aren't automatically tried as adults and convicted as adults and go to adult prison. So that age will be raised from 17 to 18. Um, of course, there could be different circumstances in which a 17 year old might still go to adult prison, but they won't automatically be tried as adults. Um, so it's a big, huge win for the state of Missouri. Okay. And you had an important distinction there that before raise the age, it was automatically every 17 year old was tried as an adult. And that is what is being changed. Yes, that is what has changed. Yep. So where do things stand now and what, what needs to happen next with the law? Um, so like I said, um, the law has passed, um, but a lot of times just because a law passed doesn't, doesn't always mean that that it becomes real, <laughs> that, that communities really feel the impact of that. So a big part of what is um, currently what's happening now is the funding for um, Raise the Age um, to be implemented across the state. So um, fortunately in our region, St. Louis City and St. Louis County, um, they've been doing the work to um, make sure they're already doing the work actually to, to get the ball in motion. That isn't happening across the state broadly and a big part of that is due to funding and lack of funding. So we need money for everything, right? Um, so a big part of that is, so now once these 17 year olds will be going into a, you know, and going to now a different system under the juvenile system, there has to be money to, to be able to take in those additional youth so right now, um, the funding isn't there. That there is some money that has been raised, but it's not the amount that the state says needs to be in place in order for the implementation to happen across the state. So that's what's happening right now. The big piece right now is just the funding or lack of funding. Okay, and it's specifically funding for the juvenile justice system. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, so the big part of that is, yeah, the money that needs to go into place to support the entities that will now hold those 17-year-olds. Um, so whatever resources, whether it's having an, a certain amount of beds, certain amount of room, resources, because um, resources will look a little different from, say, 11-year-old versus a 17-year-old. 
Um, so those different pieces, the funding that needs to go to make that happen. So uh, what, what does raising the age mean for young folks, for those who are 17? And, and uh, you know, how does being treated as an adult affect someone who is 17 year old who, who goes into the justice system? Well, first of all, 17, you're still considered a child, right? So you're still developing and making decisions. Um, an adult imprisonment is not the, the total right way to handle that situation. We need those resources for those youth in, in a community. So not a residential facility, but more of a resource center um, that maybe the community is missing and that will help our youth rather than putting them in confinement especially in adult confinement. So what are some of the consequences for those 17-year-olds who up to this point have been going to adult prison? How, how does that impact um, their lives uh, going forward? 17-year-olds that go into adult prison, um, suicide rates are higher for these youth. Um, abuse, sexual and physical abuse numbers are higher for 17-year-olds um, that are in adult prison. Um, so the, the care or lack of care <laughs> that you're able to give to a 17-year-old who is a child that is amongst adults um, is just, you, you, it, it's really difficult to even speak on, <laughs> really, of me thinking about being a 17-year-old and finding myself um, to be amongst adults in prison. And a lot of times, uh, and not to say that there hasn't been violent crime amongst youth. However, a lot of times it's not violent crime. <laughs> a lot of times that these youth find themselves um, within the system in this way. Um, so those type of things is something that is, is extremely impactful for these youth. And if they find themselves getting out and back out into the community, um, what is happening with them once they get out of that system. So what is happening and what support are they giving? What support are, is their families given as well? And a lot of times with this is another piece too. Now that a 17 year old is being treated as an adult, this 17 year old isn't able to have contact with their mother or their father or their guardian because they're being treated as an adult. Although they're still very much a child, they're still very much a youth. Um, so they're, the decisions that they try to make are there, they really aren't able to make, which is a lot of times why these 17 year olds find have found themselves um, with charges, finding themselves stuck in jail um, for longer than they should be because they're being treated as an adult, but they're not really an adult. Um, so the numbers of what happens while youth are in prison, while these 17 year olds are actually in prison, and then the things that's happening before they get there, and then the things that's happening once they get out is very important for us to look at. It's a big part of the reason why legislation like this and work around this is extremely important um, because no children should be institutionalized. That's my personal opinion. <laughs> But uh, definitely they shouldn't find themselves in prison with, with adults. And then they also lose that um, the resources for help once they are, you know, with the adults. They, whatever underlying problem that was going on that could have possibly gotten them in that situation will never be dealt with. So even, you know, they go there, they do their time, and then they're back out in the community, they will be still struggling with whatever problem that they went in there with. 
once again raise the age as addressed in House Bill 1242. Now we'll take a look at Medicaid expansion. Last August, Missouri voters passed Amendment 2 to expand Medicaid coverage and accept federal funding under the Affordable Care Act. But the Missouri House of Representatives has refused to include funding for Medicaid expansion in their budget. The Senate has not yet decided if they will include it in their budget. Earlier this year, we talked with Jen Bursdale of Missouri Healthcare for All about Medicaid expansion. Remind us of what Amendment 2 accomplished and why it was needed for all of Missouri and how the vote went. Sure. Uh, Amendment 2 is super exciting. We've been working toward Medicaid expansion for somewhere around a decade. Uh, So Amendment 2 expands Medicaid in Missouri to anybody earning up to 133% of the federal poverty level. Uh, So it's going to bring health care to somewhere north of 230,000 uninsured Missourians. Uh, Because of the pandemic and the economy, we actually expect that number will likely be a little bit higher now. Uh, And it's, it's something we've had an opportunity as a state to do for quite some time. Our legislators were not willing to do it, even though Uh, Not only is it going to save lives and prevent suffering, it is also good for the state's economy. It's good for our hospitals throughout the state. Uh, And so finally, uh, organizations like MCU and people all across the state took matters into our own hands. And we got it qualified for the ballot and passed it on August 4th. So we're very excited and uh, looking forward to the day when people can start enrolling in health coverage. This is all good news, but we've been down this road again and again in Missouri where the legislature tends to do the opposite of how the people vote. So what's the situation with Medicaid expansion going into 2021 and what efforts are underway in Jefferson City that might hamper this expansion or what's the attitude on? You're right. Uh, We have unfortunately seen the Missouri legislature be more than happy to uh, overlook the will of the people. Uh, It's one reason that Medicaid expansion amendment two is a constitutional amendment. Uh, instead of just a law, it could have been passed as a law. Uh, constitutional amendments are not absolutely you know, fail safe. The legislature can put something on the ballot to overturn them, uh, but it's a lot harder than if it's a law. You know, we've had times when the state passed a ballot initiative and they simply went to Jeff City you know, the next January, February and just overturned it. Uh, so it helps that it is in the state constitution. Uh, it helps that it is good for the state in so many ways. Uh, We know that a lot of the opposition has been partisan, ideological, um, but actually unlike something like Clean Missouri, uh, Medicaid expansion isn't really going to decrease anybody's power. It's not anyone personally any money. Uh, So we're hopeful that that will help uh, as well as, you know, we're in a pandemic. People need health care. It looks like Governor Parson and his administration are planning to implement it. Uh, whether they're happy about it or not, they seem, you know, I think someone has said resigned to the fact that this is happening. The one issue that the legislature still has control over is how money is allocated. So we've, we've kind of seen that on some other issues in Missouri where something will pass, but just no money goes to it. And that has been the opposition's uh, big uh, talking point is that, well, if we do this, we're going to have to cut elsewhere. So what is the reality of that and, and how, are, how do we expect that to play out? So there are some folks who have different opinions on this because it is in the constitution. So constitutionally, we are mandated as a state to do that. Uh, there certainly are some Republican lawmakers who seem to think that if they just don't appropriate funds, it won't happen. Uh, it's not clear that they have the right under the constitution at this point to do that. Uh, we have heard, and again, 
you know, we need to be vigilant and watch and make sure that it happens. But we have heard that Governor Parson plans to put it in his budget proposal, uh, which will come out as part of his state of the state address on January 27th. So that's always the first part of the budgeting process. Uh, does not mean that the General Assembly will take his recommendations. In fact, the final budget, you know, rarely looks exactly like the governor's proposed budget, but it is a hopeful indication. And, you know, and we'll, we'll see where that goes. But here again, it's, this is not something that they have to raise taxes for or find the money for in Missouri. This is actually something that is going to be budget relieving uh, because we bring in so much money from the federal government and we offset so many places where we're spending money right now. So certainly we hope that the budget will be written in a way that this is clearly included, but easier, I think, than when we're trying to get them to fund something where they have to actually come up with the money. The money is there. And so, you know, we just need to make sure that we've got the authority to spend it. Again, the Missouri State Senate will soon be deciding if Medicaid expansion will be included in their budget. We turn to Senate Bill 26, which seeks, among other things, to drastically increase the punishment for protesting in streets or on highways. This bill passed the Senate and has been approved by the House Crime Prevention Committee. It will soon go to the House floor for a full vote. We recently talked with Reverend Daryl Gray of the Missouri Progressive Baptist Commission, Reverend John Stratton of Trinity Episcopal Church, and Richard Von Glahn of Missouri Jobs with Justice about Senate Bill 26. Okay, let's start by just describing some of the details of this idea of unlawful traffic interference. Uh, what, what is in it and, and what does it do? Uh, and, and I want to go back. Initially, we thought it was, it, it was even worse than it is now. I mean, initially, we were looking at uh, obstruction of traffic, or they were looking at it as a felony, just straight out the gate. Uh, because of Senator Barbara Washington and Senator Carla, Carla May and, and other senators uh, 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 in Jeff City, uh, they were able to present amendments to uh, the bill that would make it a, an infraction uh, for the first offense a misdemeanor for the second offense and a felony for the third offense. Uh, from our perspective as, as activists, we're, we're still unclear uh, as to you know, what that obstruction means. Does it mean standing still? Does it mean moving with traffic? Does it mean slowing down? There's still a lot of ambiguity about it, but for the most part, we just see it as uh, legislation, anti-protest legislation, legislation that is geared to, to intimidate and threaten uh, not necessarily uh, activists like you see here today who are pretty hardcore activists, uh, but, but activists who have come out by way of George Floyd, who are, who are older, uh, who are, uh, have not been involved in protests and, and to cause them to stop and wonder and think. I think it's also, it's really important, I think, to point out the context of this bill. So it's labeled as a public safety bill, right? Um, but what happened last year? So last year, a police officer murdered George Floyd. And this bill creates a police bill of rights. Last year, there was a call to take down racist statues and monuments. This bill protects statues and monuments. Last year, people made it out into the street, massive amounts of people, to demonstrate for social, racial, and economic justice. 
and this bill criminalizes that act. So it's not like this just came out of the blue because uh, our lawmakers were all of a sudden concerned about our safety. Like this is a, a racist white supremacist bill that is in direct uh, reaction and opposition to the movement for black lives. And because it is in that historical context, that's what makes it so blatantly racist. So it's not about, it's not about public safety. I wanna add one thing to, to think John and Daryl's correct analysis of the historical context here, but we should also look at what other bills advanced in the legislature this, this week, this very week. There was the bill to criminalize protest and dissent that we're talking about. There was a bill for photo ID, which has shown to have a disproportionate harm on um, older communities and black and brown communities. There was a bill to restrict the ballot initiative process, which has been used by citizens to achieve justice on issues that the legislature was opposed to. And so this is part of Senate Bill 26 is part of a larger anti-democratic movement in this state and in this country in which those in power seek to use their power to cement their power and Mm -hmm. silence dissent. Um, And, you know, when when you look at who that is in the Missouri legislature, um, it's it's pretty clear who they are and, and who they're seeking to silence. Once again, that is Senate Bill 26, and it is currently in the House of Representatives. We now turn to Senate Bill 61, which seeks to make it easier for formerly incarcerated men and women to have their records expunged. This bill is currently in the Senate Judiciary and Civil and Criminal Jurisprudence Committee. Latrell Stanton of Expo recently talked with Martin Hutchins of Art City Defenders about expungement expansion. So now we do have um, a lawyer from the Art City Defenders, Mr. Martin Hutchins, that is here to speak about expungement and the way the current law is constructed, what can be changed, and what's good about Senate Bill 61. So, Mr. Hutchins, if you would speak a second for us about your knowledge in expungement. I appreciate it. One thing um, that I, I like to point out about expungement um, is it's often put in, inside the framework of giving individuals um, a, a second chance. And that's really, it's really a framework that I, I take a lot of issue with. Because um, once a person finishes whatever their sentence was, we are, we are all familiar with the phrase, you know, our debt, their debt to society has been paid. So at that point, there should be no need for a second chance. I think it's important to look at expungement as giving the state a second chance to correct the gross debt that people endure from a a criminal record. Again, once your sentence is completed, your debt society is is paid. Unfortunately, as we just mentioned, there's a perpetual punishment that follows with the criminal record. And again, expungement, though still super imperfect, it gives the, the state an opportunity to correct their mistake. One of the largest issues with expungement, and now I'm going to specifically speak to Missouri's law, um, once a person is successfully granted expungement, their criminal record is not totally destroyed. It's just sealed. So it gives 
a few exceptions and opportunities for that record to still be um, accessed, like looking for certain jobs. Like if you are trying to get a job on, on the casino, there's a certain license that you have to get. And if you have a record expunged, they have a right to see their record to work on a casino. But other jobs like working at a, a daycare or a health facility, those are all exceptions in which people can view um, the expunged record. Or if unfortunately a person faces another court case for another charge, once they reach the sentencing stage, the court and the prosecutor have a right to consider that expunged record. So again, expungement just means the record is sealed. Uh, there are a few states in which um, an expungement allows a record to be destroyed. Missouri just is not one of those states yet. Something that really hurt my soul in listening to Mr. Waller speak is he paid at least $2,000. And I say at least $2,000. I know he, he flat out said $2,000, but I'm sure he also didn't include the amount of time that he spent talking to his attorney. Mr. Waller's time is valuable. So although he didn't put a dollar amount on, on his time, that's time he, he didn't have with his family, time he didn't have towards working, and that matters. Um, so again, the, the monetary demands, like the $250 surcharge that Missouri requires, that's a lot of money for some people, especially especially during the pandemic right now. And also, another benefit that I appreciated that Mr. Waller had, he had the actual knowledge of expungement, meaning just being aware of it. There are so many people that are not only not familiar with the phrase expungement, but are unfamiliar that Missouri has such a process. And, if, and even if they do know that such a process exists, navigating that process is really intimidating. Anything in the court system can be intimidating. One, reading those laws, all laws are meant to benefit everyday people. If you read these laws, it doesn't seem like they're meant for everyday people to read them. And that also applies for expungement. So there are all, the, all of these barriers that prevent people from taking advantage of expungement. Um, back in 2018, only 1,187 cases for expungement were filed in the entire state of Missouri. And only 387 from St. Louis. There are far more people that could benefit from expungement than 378 in St. Louis. And in 2019, the entire state of Missouri, there were only up a little over 1,200 expungement petitions filed. And again, of that 1,200, 349 were from St. Louis. So there just aren't enough people seeking expungement. There should be way, way larger numbers of petitions being filed. And again, this just really goes to the lack of access and the lack of awareness of this process. Another issue which the Senate bill is looking to uh, mitigate a bit, there are 85 maybe a little over 85, but 85 offenses that are flat out ineligible, meaning if you have this on your record, you can't consider expungement. So something I especially appreciate about the Senate bill is it removes two, two or three offenses. So now it's gonna only be about 82 offenses that aren't eligible. That number is still too high, but anytime we're reducing that number, that's a plus. Um, now this is gonna be specific to St. Louis, and especially St. Louis County, 
there are more than 80, more than 80 municipalities. And this is the issue with expungement because as you're going through the expungement process, you have to detail information of your criminal record. It's so often that people don't really recall what's on their record. Unfortunately, leaving something out can hurt an expungement petition. And again, it's very, it's very common for people to just forget about these tickets. But again, that'll hurt an expungement um, application. So I appreciate the Senate bill giving legal, um, legal aid organizations the opportunity to access the um, criminal record repositories um, system to give people information of their record. Unfortunately, if you go to CaseNet or Minicourt.net, those resources, I'm sorry, those, those are websites that you can go to look at um, court cases and um, tickets, et cetera. But those sites, although housed and managed by Missouri, they don't provide complete records. They're very inconsistent. And again, the inconsistency can be detrimental to an expungement um, petition. So these are all barriers that really prevent people from successfully um, reaching expungement once they even get to the point of considering expungement. Senate, I really appreciate the Senate bill for reducing the amount of offenses that are ineligible and giving those UA organizations um, a, a pathway to access records. Again, expungement expansion is contained in Senate Bill 61. It has been a very busy legislative year, and these bills and so many more will have a direct impact on Missourians. It is time to use your voice. Contact your state representatives and senators to tell them what you think about these bills. Even if your legislators agree with you, they still need to hear from you. Don't let this opportunity pass without your voice being added. To learn more about MCU, go to our website at mcustlewis.org. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you have been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening. Thank you.